Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter number 6. The book of 1 Kings in chapter number 6. We're now getting further into Solomon's reign, and one of the most important things that Solomon did was to build the temple that was dedicated to the Lord. We know that David had it in his mind and did everything he could to prepare for Solomon to succeed. But it was Solomon himself under the direction of God to put this together. And this is going to be a very significant event because the temple has always been a special thing for God. It represents the presence of God among his people. And that's always been important to God. God is not a God who's afar off. God is not a God who's just always around the corner and you can never see him. God wants to be a God who dwells with his people. So the idea of the tabernacle and the temple have always been important to God because God wants to be present among his people. We find the construction of the temple found in the book of 1 Kings in chapter 6. The book of 1 Kings in chapter 6, and notice with me if you don't mind starting at verse 1. 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month Ziph, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord and the house which the king Solomon built for the Lord. The length thereof was three score cubits and the breadth thereof 20 cubits and the height thereof 30 cubits and the porch before the temple of the house 20 cubits was the length thereof according to the breadth of the house and 10 cubits was the breadth thereof before the house. And for the house he had made windows of narrow lights. And against the walls of the house he built chambers round about, against the walls of the house round about, both of the temple and of the oracle, and he made chambers round about. And nethermost chamber was five cubits broad, and the middle was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For without in the wall of the house... He made the narrowest rest round about and the beams that should not be or should not be fastened in the walls of the house. And the house, when it was in building, was built of stone made ready before it was brought thither, so that it was neither hammer nor axe nor tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. And the door for the middle chamber was in the right side of the house. So they went up winding uh, stairs into the middle chamber and out of the middle into the third. So he built the house and finished it and covered the house with beams and boards of cedar. Then he built chambers against all the house five cubits high and they rested on the house with timber of cedar. And the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying concerning this house which thou art in building. If thou will walk in my statutes and execute my judgments and keep my commandments to walk in them, then I will perform my word with thee, which I spoke unto David thy father, and I will dwell 
among the children of Israel and not forsake my people Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. And with this, we want to cover a history of this temple. In fact, all the iterations of the temple. And so if you don't mind, we'll just label it this way. The three temples, the three temples. If you wouldn't mind, let's go to the Lord together and let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much again for you being a wonderful God. And as we come to you now, we're just asking that you would give us grace and mercy, that we could see the emphasis of the tabernacle and the temple, that we could see what your desire is to dwell among your people, and that we would still desire for you to dwell among us even today. Lord, I'm very conscious of my own limitations and my own inabilities but I'm asking that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would guide, direct, give power and strength where I have none, that you would give me the words and the direction and the thoughts where I cannot have. Lord, I'm asking that you would do it in a purpose to glorify your own self and not to waste these good folks' time, but it would be good to be in the house of the Lord as we understand to get close to you and that you desire to be in you, to be very present in our everyday lives. Lord, we thank you for whom you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, inside of the Bible, there was more words, more chapters, more verses dedicated to this one subject than any other subject in the Bible. And that is the subject of the tabernacle slash temple. Both of them are a continuation of each other. And there is more passages dedicated to the tabernacle temple than any other subject. Remember that God doesn't use his words arbitrarily. God didn't say, you know what? I need to get a section that's going to bore them to tears. And I just want to see if they're going to manage to get through it. That wasn't God's desire at all. Everything that he has given inside of his word was given with intent, given with purpose, given with direction. And when God places such a great emphasis on any subject in the Bible, we need to pay attention to it or at least have a working knowledge of why this is so important. And so if you don't mind, we're going to cover all the different iterations of the temple tabernacle. In fact, let's start off with that, the tabernacle, the tabernacle. The tabernacle was meant to be the, the um, <laughs> temporary dwelling place of God among his people. That as the people were going through the wilderness wanderings, the tabernacle was meant so they could be taken apart, stored away, and carried as quickly as possible. And so when they would get to the place where the Holy Spirit led them through the pillar of uh, smoke in the day and the pillar of fire at night that the Holy Spirit would stop. It was there that they would build the tabernacle and there was a certain way that they would put it together and orchestrate it and make it face. And then they would build the camp all around it. And it was there that the dwelling place of God was supposed to be in the middle of the people that they could look up during the wilderness wanderings and be able to see the presence of God visibly through the presence of the pillar of smoke during the day and the pillar of fire at night. But beyond that, it was supposed to be the place where people could go and say, I'm going to God's house, and that's where God is. He camps with us. That God's not far away. He's not a distant plane. He's not a different kingdom. God dwells with us in the midst of his people. God has always wanted to be close to his people, not far away. Now inside of the tabernacle, there are going to be several different pieces of 
furniture. And in these pieces of furniture, each one of them are going to be a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then as you come into the tabernacle temple, the very first piece of furniture you come to is out in the courtyard before you actually get into the tabernacle. And the very first piece of furniture you come to is the brazen altar. Here at the brazen altar, this is where the people would give their sacrifices. So when the people would come to give, there's five different offerings they would come to give. They would come, deliver their sacrifices, give their offerings, and the priests there would prepare it to make sure that the sacrifice is acceptable, to make sure that it is uh, taken care of properly, that it's exactly what God had offered. And this was to represent to the people to recognize that because of their sin, something must die. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It's to be a reminder that all sin is awful. And by the way, it is awful to sacrifice an animal. It is not a pleasant thing to to hear the the throat being slashed and the gurgling coming out, to smell the blood coming out to when the, the offering is being burnt, to smell the burnt offering. It is not a pleasant experience, but it is one that would leave an impact in someone's mind to let them know without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, that our sin requires a price. And of course, we know Jesus Christ took our sin upon us, that for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, after this, the priest would take care of the sacrifice. And again, the sacrifice was to be a reminder that in order to go to God, to approach God, our sin must be taken care of before we could even approach God. Now, the next thing that the priest would go to before they would go back into the presence of God is they would turn from the brazen altar and they would turn to the brazen laver. The brazen laver was a place where the priest could wash their hands and they could wash up. After all, when you're in the business of sacrificing animals, it is not a clean business. It is very messy. And so we understand that even though that the blood of the sacrifice Jesus Christ took care of our sins, we still live in this filthy old world and we get dirty. And so even though our sin is taken care of, we recognize that we still have to be clean before God. That's why the Bible gives us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That even though our sin is taken care of, before we could go to the presence of God, we must be clean before God. We must be confessed up with our sin, recognizing that, yes, I've still sinned and I need God to wash me clean. And so that's what the brazen laver was. It was to let the priest physically clear themselves off and ceremonial clean themselves up before they went to the presence of God because they could not go into the presence of God with, with muck and the world and the sacrifices still upon them. Now, as they walked into the actual tabernacle, they would come into the holy place. And in the holy place, there are three pieces of furniture that needed to be tended to. On one side, you had the table of showbread and that the priest would have to put together every day a special baked bread that would be given as an honor to the Lord. And remember, this is a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. 
Then over on the other side, you would have the golden candlestick. This was a tall candlestick that would have oil pumping into it. And it was again the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Then you would come to the very back of the tabernacle um, inside of this section called the holy place. And you would come to the altar of incense. The altar of incense would be a representation of the prayers being lifted up to Jesus or to the Lord. And we know that Jesus Christ is forever making intercession before us. That Jesus is praying for us even now. In fact, when you woke up this morning, one of the greatest thoughts that you could have had is that Jesus had already prayed for you. That Jesus is our intercessor. He's the one who goes before us, before God. Now, at the very back of it, you would have a big, thick curtain, a veil that would go and make a separation between this section of the tabernacle and the other side of the tabernacle. And the other side of the tabernacle was what's called the Holy of Holies. Now, there was a separation there that only one person can go into the Holy of Holies and that once a year and not without blood. And so the veil was that barrier that would keep people from approaching God. That this veil was a hand's breadth thick. That means that if you were to look at the curtain right on, it would be this wide. And then, of course, be that long. It would be something that you couldn't see through. It'd be almost equivalent to like a fire curtain. It'd be very much a barrier where you could not go through. It would stop you. And this, of course, was to show that there was at that time a barrier between God and man. But when Jesus Christ died, one of the miracles that happened on the cross is the veil was rent in two. And now we all have access to God. Why? God wants to dwell his presence among his people. And now because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we can approach God at any time. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now beyond the veil was the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. Inside of the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a physical representation of the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant was a place that had the tables of law. It had Aaron's rod that had budded to show God's miracle and God's appointed. All of this was to show Jesus Christ, that Jesus being dwelled in us, that Jesus Christ was the word, he's the miracles. He, God wanted to have something there that we could look at and be reminded of the presence of God, that God wants to dwell among his people. Well, after the people came into the their um, excuse me, came into the kingdom, the promised land. Notice with me in 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. Now we come to the first temple, often called Solomon's temple. Notice what it says in 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. It came to pass in the 480th year, so 480 years after the children of Israel were came out of the land of Egypt. So 480 years after the children of Israel came from Egypt, now finally God gets a permanent dwelling. Remember the tabernacle was a temporary dwelling place. Now after 480 years, God is going to have a place that is going to represent the permanent dwelling place among his people. They did not do that during the period of the judges. 
They didn't have it during King Saul. They didn't even have it during King David. It is now after King Solomon that this permanent dwelling place is going to be constructed. Solomon had built this temple in fulfillment to God's promise to David. David had gathered the materials, put everything together, and prepared for it. Now it is based off of the dimensions of the tabernacle, only bigger. It was made to be a big place. It took three years to build, and it made an estimate cost to build it $20 billion, with a B. That's a lot of money. It was considered in the ancient world one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was constructed so fabulously and so well that it lasted for a long time. In addition, it was coated with pure gold. And it was made so that way when someone was approaching the capital city of Jerusalem, that on top of one of the highest hills, Mount Moriah, the tabernacle would, or the temple would sit. And as the people would approach it, the sun would glint off of the gold and shine into the people's um, eyes with the idea that it was to be a physical representation of the presence of God among his people. That has been the whole major theme. God wanted to be known. His presence dwelt among his people. Well, it didn't take long for the people to rebel and try to do their own thing. And God sent prophets after prophets and men of God trying to warn the people. And finally, in 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire came and destroyed Jerusalem. Not only did they destroy Jerusalem, they raised the temple, this presence of God, to the ground, ground it up into dust, and it was nothing. It was gone. And it was a heartbreaking time. Which now brings us to the second temple. The second temple. The second temple is often called Zerubbabel's temple. Sometimes it is called Herod's temple. But the second temple was built under Zerubbabel, at least started. We find it in the book of Ezra chapter number one. I'm just going to give references rather than read all of these things. Ezra chapter one, we have after 70 years of the Babylonian captivity, the Jewish people under Cyrus the Great, the Persian emperor, had allowed the Hebrew people to go back to their homeland. And not only go back to their homeland, but they had the instructions to rebuild the temple. And so you had a great return under Zerubbabel. In Ezra chapter number three, uh, three and four, the people laid the foundation of the temple and they celebrated and they were so excited. And the old men who remembered Solomon's temple, they cried because they look at it and they realize that there's no way they could build it to be as great as Solomon's temple. But they also cried with great joy saying, man, at least we got a temple again. We can start building it. However, there was some persecution that came up and some letter writing and some politics. And the people were ordered by the local magistrates to stop building the temple. And so the temple foundation was laid, but for 15 years it sat there just grabbing weeds. God stirred up the people again by the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, who stirred up the people once again, and they went and rebuilt the temple and God protected them. And we could see that God raised these people up. Now, this temple 
was a heartbreak to people because they remember Solomon's temple. And they got a little poochy lip disease that said, oh man, why should we really work on this? I mean, after all, there's no way that this could match up to Solomon's temple. I mean, because that was worth $20 billion. We don't have $20 billion. We're just trying to put something up. And so they said, how are we going to make it match its splendor? Well, the Bible talks about in the book of Haggai, God gives his promise that the glory of the latter house shall be greater. What's going to happen is that this temple that they're building, they don't realize it, but Jesus himself is going to walk inside of this temple. And whereas a picture may be great and $20 billion worth of gold may be great, it's not as good as God himself walking physically inside of the temple. Remember the whole purpose of the temple is that God wanted to have his presence manifest inside with his people. He's not a God who's afar off. He's a God who wants to be in the midst of his people. And so it goes on. Now, after they build Zerubbabel under his instructions, they rebuild the temple. It serves as a functioning temple for a while but we find some more things start occurring in the book of Daniel. In fact, let's turn there, if you don't mind. The book of Daniel, chapter 11. I love history, so let's see a prophecy about something in our history. It was prophecy to Daniel. It's our history. Daniel, chapter number 11. Daniel chapter 11, and notice with me, if you don't mind, in verse number 30. <clears throat> Daniel 11 and verse number 30. For the, chip, <clears throat> for the ships of Chittim shall come up against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the holy covenant. So shall he do and shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the holy covenant. And the arm shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. And such do wickedly against the covenant, shall he corrupt by flatteries, but the people shall that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. And they shall understand among the people that instruct many, and yet they shall fall by the sword, by the flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be hoping with a little help, but many shall cleave with them with many flatter with flatteries. And some of them of understanding shall fall, and try them, and to purge them, and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is a point uh, yet for the time appointed. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper until the indignation shall be accomplished, for that which is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the god of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall magnify himself above all. Now let me kind of explain what's going on. So Solomon temple is gone. 
Under Zerubbabel, they rebuild the temple and it functions for a while. As time goes on, we have different world empires that come to pass. The Persians are going to give way to the Greek empire. Alexander the Great is going to come conquering the known world in about 330 BC. As he conquers around the world, he now reinstitutes Greek philosophy, Greek thought, Greek language all throughout the known world. When Alexander the Great dies, he dies at a young age. He dies about 33. And when he dies, he did not have an heir to take over his empire. And so his empire was divided up into four different parts. Two of those parts that are important is going to be the Seleucid Empire, who's going to be headquarters in what we would call Syria. And then the Ptolemy Empire, which is going to be based in Egypt. And what's going to happen is that these two empires over time are going to start having a rivalry between each other. Instead of being united, they're going to fight each other. Now, if you're familiar with a map, you have Syria and you have Egypt. And in between those two is a place called Israel. And Israel is going to be used as political football between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids for quite a while. There are going to be a time that the Seleucids are going to be more powerful and they take over that territory. There are going to be times that the Ptolemies are going to be more powerful and they're going to take over that. Let me put a little asterisk history thing. Uh, Cleopatra of Egypt, she wasn't uh, Egyptian. She was Greek. She was of the Ptolemies. But anyways, so all of this is happening during this time. Now, there's going to be a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. And so he is going to come from the Seleucid Empire, and he is going to come to with the purpose of kicking the Ptolemies once again. And so he gathers his army, he marches through Israel, makes fun of them, he hated the Jewish people. And so he marches through Israel, goes down to Egypt. And this time something happened that was very important to all of world history. Notice again with me in verse 30. For the ships of Chittim shall come. Chittim, we're going to later know, be known as the Roman Empire. This is the first time in the ancient world that the Romans exhorted their political influence to world events. Up to this time, they were their own little um, uh, place gathering up strength. It was the Greeks that were the most powerful. But now the Romans begin to get powerful, so much so that they told Ptolemy, or, um, Antiochus Epiphanes, if you mess with the Ptolemies, you're going to mess with us. And because they actually had enough strength to do so, that Antiochus Epiphanes threw up his hands, eh, fine, and he marched back. But now he's upset. He can't beat up who he wants to beat up. So he's going to go to his favorite dog to go kick, the Jewish people. And so he goes to the Jewish people and goes to their temple. Now, inside of the temple, we know that the Jewish people have taken this seriously. We're going to worship God and only God. Now remember the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple is to show the manifest presence of God among his people. This is the picture. We know it's a picture, but it is an important picture. So Antiochus Epiphanes, knowing how important the temple is to the Jewish people, said, you know what? Let's go ahead and kick them a little bit. They can't do anything to me. So he goes and takes a pig, which is an unclean animal, and sacrifices it in the temp temple 
dedicates it to Zeus, the, the uh, head of the Greek pantheon gods, which is not the God of the Bible. And he says, what are you going to do about it? The Bible shows this event. Notice with me, verse 31. And the arms shall stand on the part and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. This is such an important historical event because it's going to reflect what happens later with the Antichrist with this event of the same name called the abomination of desolations. What's going to happen is the Antichrist later on. Ah, We'll get to the Antichrist. Remember this picture. We're going to get back to it. So when Ptolemy, or um, sorry, when Antiochus Epiphany does this, the Jewish people have had it. It's their last straw. And they throw a rebellion. Now inside of the Apocrypha, we do not believe the Apocrypha is scripture. However, it does hold history that in the book of Maccabees, it describes what happens. That in the book of Maccabees, when Ptolemy, or Antiochus Epiphanes put this on, the people now rebel under the Maccabees. It's called the Maccabean Rebellion. They throw out uh, Tychus Epiphanes, get rid of his uh, warriors. They come back in force. Now they're hiding inside of the temple. Inside of the temple, they only have enough oil in their lamp for one day. They're now surrounded. It's going to be seven days before they could get supplies. And now what are they going to do? They're inside of a little temple that doesn't have lights. They're surrounded. What are they going to do? And God allowed the oil in their lamp to not to last one day, but seven days until they finally got relief. And this miracle that had happened turned into a big holiday. The Jewish people call Hanukkah. Now, all this happens because of Antiochus Epiphanes. And the Jewish people end up winning their own independence for a while. Well, their independence didn't last too long because there was a man from Itamaria. This is going to be... um, on the other side of the Jordan, he is going to come in and sell all of the promised land to the Roman people. Now, he didn't own the rights to it, but he just sold it to them and said, here you go. So the Romans come in and say, hey, guess what? We own you guys. What do you mean you own us? Yeah, we bought you guys. We bought your country. So they were never conquered or anything. So this caused a big problem. Well, the son of the man who sold him in was a very important guy by the name of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, despite of all of his flaws, was a great politician. And he understood how to work the balance of trying to keep the Roman people happy and trying to keep the Jewish people happy. He knew for the Jewish people, they would not sacrifice to any of the Roman gods. They also would not accept certain taxes. So Herod the Great went to the Roman Senate and to the Roman Empire and convinced them not to allow the Jewish people, the Jewish people were exempt from worshiping the Roman gods. Everyone else in the Roman empire had to do that. They were also exempt from some of the taxes. And so he did that for them. He also managed to keep the peace with the Jewish people so they wouldn't rebel against Rome. He did that for Rome. Now, in order to also keep the peace with the Jewish people, he understood that the temple was very important to them. So he started a remodeling project that ended up lasting 46 years as he took Zerubbabel's temple and began to remodel it and turn it to something wonderful, something amazing during that time. 
This was the temple that Jesus Christ himself was going to walk in and God himself was going to walk among his people. Well, after Jesus Christ left, the Jewish people rejected Christ, rejected the gospel and rejected the God of the Bible. And because of that, God sent a destruction and the Romans destroyed the temple and Jerusalem once again in 70 AD by the Roman emperor Titus. He was a general at that time. He became Roman emperor later and the temple was destroyed. Now to this day, the Jewish people cannot perform their religion, Judaism, in its full force without a temple. The Bible clearly states the only place they could do their sacrifices is in the temple. The Jewish people great hope every year is that one day they could rebuild the temple. Now, because the Jewish people becoming their own independent state once again in 1948, they've always gunned and went for this idea. We are going to rebuild the temple. Today, the Jewish people have entire warehouses dedicated to the materials of the temple. They keep up with it. At any time, all you have to do is say go and they'll start building. They have everything they need right now. The problem is, is that right now that piece of real estate on Mount Moriah is occupied by the Muslims with the with their shrine, the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock has been sitting there for several hundred years now, and the, and the uh, he, uh, Muslim people will not turn that over. That is their spot. They don't want to turn it over. Well, what's going to happen is that the next event on God's calendar is called the rapture. During the rapture, everyone who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior is going to be taken out of here. We're going to be gone. See you later. Now, immediately afterwards, the Russians and the Muslims are going to join together because the United States is gone. That's a whole different lecture. Uh -huh. That they're going to come to destroy Israel. And God is going to protect the Antichrist and Israel and make them disappear. Now, with the Muslims gone, there's no one to stop them from rebuilding the temple. So the tribulation is going to officially begin not during the rapture, but during a peace agreement between the Antichrist and the Jewish people to start rebuilding the temple. As soon as that peace agreement starts, you start your clock and the tribulation begins. Seven years is on. Now, three and a half years, they're going to rebuild the temple. Now, remember, they have all the materials. They have all the plans. They have everything. They just need to say go. So as soon as the Antichrist signs this agreement, they get rid of the Dome of the Rock. They start rebuilding the temple. Three and a half years later, the temple is finished. The Antichrist is going to show up to, anti to the opening ceremonies. And the Antichrist is going to sit on the throne and declare himself to be God. An event that Jesus calls the abomination of desolations. Something that is referred to even in Daniel if you're still there. Verse number 36. And the king shall do according to his will and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods and shall prosper until the indignation shall be accomplished for that is determined shall be done. This is a prophecy that was made all the way back in Daniel and is referenced to over and over and over and over. 
When the Antichrist declares himself to be God, the Jewish people realize that, oops, this is not the guy we're waiting for. This is not our Messiah. And so once again, they're going to flee for their lives. Some people say that the regathering together of Israel in 1948 was an answer to prophecy. It was not. It is something great, but the Jewish people are going to be scattered from their land once again. And God is going to, after the tribulation, regather all of his people back into Israel. And so the more fulfillment of prophecy is much later. So after the tribulation is over with, God is going to start the millennial kingdom, the thousand year reign of Christ. This time when he starts the millennial kingdom, God is going to build his own temple based in Jerusalem and a whole different lectures. Ezekiel chapter 34, uh, sorry, uh, 43 covers some of this rebuilding of the temple. And it talks about this temple being built in the millennial kingdom. Now there are some uh, differences between the millennial kingdom temple, sometimes called Ezekiel's temple, and the previous temples. The, uh, The temple in the millennial kingdom does not have an Ark of the Covenant. It does not have the tables of law. It does not have Aaron's rod. It does not have the mercy seat. It does not have a high priest. It does not have the veil. It doesn't have the showbread. It doesn't have the lampstead. Why? Because Jesus Christ is there. You don't need the pictures if Jesus Christ is there. What is the whole purpose of the temple and the tabernacle? To have the manifest presence of God living among his people. In the millennial kingdom, we don't have to see pictures. We can have the real thing. And Jesus Christ will be there living and dwelling among his people. That's something we get to look forward to. So what is the purpose of the millennial king uh, temple during there? Well, it demonstrates God's holiness. It's a dwelling place for God's presence among his people. And it's going to be the center of divine government. Jesus will be the high priest. Something interesting is that the sacrifices will once again be instituted. There will be sacrifices in the millennial kingdom. So why bring back the blood sacrifice? Well, remember the sacrifices never took away sin in the first place. They were only a picture. They were memorial. They're not reinstituting the Mosaic law, but they're going to allow the people during the millennial kingdom who will be born to be able to have a picture because of your sin There requires a sacrifice. Jesus took away your sacrifice and paid for it already. But you need that reminder that because of your sin, there's a consequence for it, that for the wages of sin is death. And it's going to be a picture. Now, what about us? We obviously are New Testament Christians. We're not Jewish people. We don't have a temple. The church, by the way, is not the temple. So how does this apply to us? Well, notice with me, if you don't mind, two different passages and we'll be done. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, may I remind you, the whole purpose of the tabernacle temple was to have the manifest presence of God among his people. That God wants to be a God who dwells among his people. Not afar off, not around the corner, not some spiritually weird place. God wants to be among his people. 
1 Corinthians chapter 3. Notice with me in verse 16. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Here we understand that when you come to know Jesus Christ as your, holy, as your Savior, the Holy Spirit who is God comes to live inside of you. And God's presence now dwells among his people inside of you. And that your body is now the dwelling place of God. Now, just like the tabernacle and temple, we study them and we studied what happened when they were defiled and how God took those tabernacle and, and temple very seriously. We are to take our temple very seriously too because this is the dwelling place of God. God, what would you have me to do with your temple? God, how do you want me to treat your temple? Understanding that God has owns us and that it's his temple he now dwells in. Let's build upon that thought, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The whole purpose of the tabernacle and temple was to have the manifest presence of God among his people. We as New Testament people, we don't need a temple because we are the temple. That if we come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit who is God comes to live inside of us and he wants to be among his people. He wants to dwell among his people. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and notice with me verse 15. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 15. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? God forbid. Now think about this. We talked about Antiochus Epiphanes and how he made a sacrifice of a pig to Zeus. Was that accepted? No. Not at all. So therefore, if you are the temple of the holy God, what business do you have hanging around prostitutes? And you understand what I mean by hanging out? We have no business whatsoever. If we are the temple of God and the presence of God, there are certain things we cannot do with our bodies if this is going to be the dwelling place, the representation of God's holiness inside of our life. Notice with me, if you don't mind, verse 6. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, he saith, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are gods. Now you know this turns everything around. One of the things we look at ourselves and say this is my body and I could do whatever I want with it. Not if you're a Christian. It's now God's body. His presence and it is supposed to represent his holiness. That means there are certain things that we refrain from doing in order to keep our bodies holy. Sometimes people bring up the idea of tattoos, okay? 
And certainly we could see some things of the Old Testament law, but we know that we're not under the Old Testament law. So what do we do? Well, our body is the temple of the living God. We should always be saying, God, this is your body. What should I do to my body? How should I treat my body in order to be the best vessel for you? We understand that this covers things that we do, things that we go, how we take care of our bodies. We know that there are sometimes people that need encouragement about taking care of their health and hygiene. I mean, you know, we've had people before that we've, with loving in the Lord, say, go take a shower. I mean, you know, we're trying to be a help to them. But you understand, there are certain things we should do with our body. We should try to keep our bodies flexible. I understand I've got health problems, but I'm consciously aware in my mind that I need to keep my body functionable so he can use it however he sees fit. I don't have any right to wreck this body so I'm useless to God physically. You understand there's practical things that we apply to this if we want to have the presence of God. In addition, there are certain things that this vessel should not go. Could you imagine taking the presence of God with you? Just imagine, okay, you could have God in a little pot. You have God's little house here. Work with me. And you take him to an ACDC concert. Here you go, God. Does it belong there? No. There are certain things that that doesn't belong in. Well, we are that house. There are certain things that it doesn't belong to. It doesn't belong to. We have the idea of things that we ingest. We know that there are certain things of drugs and alcohol. Why don't I participate in it? Well, in alcohol. Well, we know that the Bible has quite a bit to say, but if nothing else, this is the temple of the living God. I need to find out what he wants to do with his body. He owns it. It's his tempy place. You understand, imagine this. Imagine, use your divine imagination with me, that Jesus is living inside of you. He is. But let's just imagine that he's got a little room. You could imagine the little cave-in uh, thing, couch, TV, whatnot. And that everything that you put in your eye gate, Jesus is forced to watch on his television. Everything that goes in your ear gate, he has to listen through with the great surround sound speakers that he has in there. And if it's something that's not pleasing to him, can you imagine what torture, aggravation that would be to him? Oh man, this is great stuff. And Jesus is like, please stop. Please stop. You understand? We are the dwelling place of God. We have a responsibility. Could you imagine... Just imagine that you had Jesus and you forced him to listen to nonstop ACDC. I don't know any bands. All right. So just forget me. You just imagine all the seventies, eighties rock bands. Some of you might know. All right. And you're playing it nonstop or worse. You play country all the time and he's forced to listen to it. And he doesn't like it. You know, one day you're going to stand before God and give an account and he's going to say, you know, you remember all those countless hours you made me listen to that stuff? Right? Hey, you know that torture you put your body through and you didn't have to? Hey, you know how you didn't take care of yours? <laughs> I know we're starting to hit everybody now. But you understand? He dwells within us and he wants to dwell with us. But more important than that, He'll never leave you nor forsake you. 
He wants to be close with you. He wants to be there in your good times and bad times. He wants to be present with you no matter what you go through. He's there. The Holy Spirit lives within you. That is the comforting part of it. That I could go through anything in my life and he's there with me. And by the way, if I ever need wisdom, I don't have to go find him somewhere. He's there. Lord, I need wisdom. He says, all right, let's go. I need strength. I need power. I need encouragement. I'm here. Let's go. We don't have to go find him. We don't have to find his address. We don't have to find his phone number. We don't have to remember the secret code to get in. He's there with us. What a great privilege we have as born again Christians to have the temple of God being present with us. Again, that was the whole purpose of the tabernacle temple was to have the manifest presence of God living among his people. We as born again saints, we have something better than a building. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us that we are the temple of the living God and he lives within us. What a great privilege that we have. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.